When you're running a sale in Shopify, you create coupon codes, right? That's just one more thing for your customers to deal with. What if instead you could automate price changes and promotions? That's exactly what Bold's product discount app does. It's one of my longtime favorites from Bold, and if you need to run any kind of sale, this is the app to do it. You can run sales by hand-selecting products, a collection, a vendor, a product type, or even the entire store. And when you run sales, you can schedule them to start and stop at certain times. And there's an, even an option to put a live countdown timer on the products on sale. So it's perfect for daily deals. Sale ends in 4 hours, 3 minutes, 21 seconds, and counting. Imagine the urgency this can create. So one of the automation features I really like is this app's ability to put sale icons and badges on sale products, then automatically tag them when it puts them on sale, and remove the tag when they're off sale. So this lets me create a clearance or deals of the day section by making a Shopify collection where the product tag equals daily deal, and then the product automatically appears and disappears from it when it's on and off sale. And these sales pages are consistently one of the most visited pages on the stores that have them. So from power hour sales, daily deals, countdown timers, clearance corners, and more, just about every store can benefit from some kind of sale that this app can run. Before your next sale, grab it free for 60 days at ethercycle.com bold. That's ethercycle.com bold. Additional support for the unofficial Shopify podcast comes from SEO Manager. You already know the benefits of SEO. The higher you rank in search, the more visitors you get, and more visitors means more sales, which means more money in your pocket. But how do you do it? That's where SEO Manager comes in. It helps Shopify store owners get found in search engines more easily, and it's trusted by thousands of store owners. No surprise there, it's equal parts power, innovation, and ease of use. Think of SEO Manager as your optimization toolbox. Here's some examples. It can scan your site for issues, offer keyword suggestions, add structured data support, analyze missing pages and redirects, and even integrate with Kit, plus a ton more tools to help you be easily found in Google searches. Best of all, it's easy to get started. You can get started in minutes, and their friendly support team is always on standby if you need help. Seriously, I have met them. They are the best. And as a special offer to you, you can get 10% off SEO Manager forever when you sign up at seomanager.com unofficial. That's seomanager.com slash unofficial. Hello and welcome back to the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elster, recording from the lovely gray... And literally, we painted the walls gray, gray uh, EtherCycle HQ in Skokie, Illinois, where it is also gray and rainy outside. That's okay. I have a lot of lights in here. It's it's bright. And joining me to brighten my day is none other than Rifki Itzkowitz, a 24-year-old fashion designer living in New York City. And she has a experience similar to what we've heard on the show before. She had a problem in the market and said, you know what, why not me? I could do this better. So as a practicing Orthodox Jew, she was frustrated at not being able to find modest special occasion wear that actually fit. So she set out to create her own. Her company, Impact Fashion, is the only size, inclusive, modest, special occasion fashion line on the market. How's that for a niche, right? That's great. Every style is fitted to perfection, available in sizes 2 to 24, because there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Her wholesale line is stocked in over 25 boutiques nationwide, 
September 2018, she launched the B2C arm of her company on Shopify, impactfashionnyc.com. Her site's in the top 12% of Shopify stores, launched in the same week by traffic. Congratulations, Rifki. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I read the description, but uh, in your own words, what is Impact Fashion? So impact fashion is a totally different way of approaching dressing. If you have restrictions on the way that you dress, and I'm using the word restrictions just because it's simpler, uh, but if for whatever reason you choose to dress a certain way, I dress really modestly for religious reasons. There are people who dress modestly because that's what they feel more comfortable in. There are people who dress not modestly because that's what they feel comfortable in. And it doesn't matter because if you feel like you need to be dressed a certain way, then you are really limited by the available clothing options out there. I can't just walk into a mall and try something on and wear it as is because it won't be covered enough for me. I would have to alter it. I would have to lengthen it. I would have to add sleeves. I'd have to do all of these things that all cost time and money. If I'm not experienced in sewing, then I might not know what's possible to do. And it's just really frustrating. Um, So I set out to make this company that approached fashion from this totally different perspective, which was modesty first, Fashion, very close second. It's not frumpy. Oh, I hate the modest fashion frump. It's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, And it's just a different way of looking at things. And it's open to everyone because while there are so many modest fashion companies out there, specifically for my community, from the Orthodox Jewish community, for a lot of reasons that I can't articulate. I have a couple theories why this is, but for whatever reason, those lines tend to run incredibly small. And they also tend to stop at around a size 14, which is stupid. There's no reason why it should be that way. Um, So I set out to do this thing that would fit properly, that would be true to size. I'm a size 10, and I am a size 10 in my line, and I'm also a size 10 when I walk into a department store. Excuse me, when I walk into a department store. So what that means is that if I know my size, then I can shop properly. And it means that I can look at something and see it on my site and know, oh, that's going to fit me right, as opposed to going to, let's say, a different modest site that I might look at it and look at their size chart and see that their extra large is barely an eight. And that's not helpful to anyone. So impact fashion is just modest fashion that's open to everyone. It's a totally different way of looking at clothes. And when you, to be clear, when you say modest, like there's this idea, I, I think some people immediately pictured like, Handmaid's Tale. This is not oh, the gosh. case at all. When no. it, when you say modest, you're just saying like it. It's not revealing, but that is a hundred percent independent of like fashionable. Many of the clothes in the like the lifestyle editorial shots I'm seeing here are flat out glamorous without being revealing. I at no point would look at these clothes and go, "Oh, it's modest fashion." Like I just I'm- accepted it as like this. These are nice clothes. Period. Done. I'm so glad that you brought this up. I'm a huge fan of The Handmaid's Tale. I have to put it out there. But yeah, that's yeah, not too. what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm, oh, it's such a great show. Um, the the clothes, the way that I approach fashion is that um, I, I have very specific guidelines. Specifically in Orthodox Judaism, modesty means elbows, knees, and collarbones covered at all time. For those of you who don't know, your collarbone is if you feel at the base of your neck, there are two bumps right at the base of your neck. That's your collarbone. Um, and that is what I cover at all times. And what that means is that I just start out my silhouettes as covered and then I make fashion from there. So I'm not thinking about, you know, tent dresses or like really buttoned up, very austere looks like what you would see in a show like The Handmaid's Tale. I'm just thinking about fashion that happens to be covered. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, that is a that's a, a brilliant approach to it. 
So what is what's your background um, that led you where you said you were comfortable and you were willing to go, okay, I see this gap in the marketplace. I'm starting as my own best customer. Let's do this. So my background is actually very construction-based. By construction, I mean like sewing construction, how to actually put a garment together. Uh, I am a couture-trained dressmaker and seamstress. I've been sewing since I was 10. My grandmother taught me how. And I actually spent two and a half years doing alterations um, that are very specific to the kinds of alterations that Orthodox Jews tend to have, um, tend to need. So if you buy a skirt and it's too short, you're going to add something to the bottom of it to make it longer. If you buy a dress and it doesn't have sleeves, you might want to add sleeves to it. You might want to layer something underneath it. So I spent two and a half years doing that. And in that time, I was also making custom gowns and dresses. Um, and those were pieces that I was designing and constructing myself from scratch in uh, with my clients. And that was going really well. I did that while I was actually in school. Um, so I did it kind of, I would say it was my part-time, full-time job. You know, when you have that job that you don't, it is a full-time job, but it's not, you don't have the hours to give it to a part-time because I was also in school full-time. So it was, it was a fun time, um, and it was going quite well to the point where I didn't really have time to do anything aside from sleep, eat, go to school, and work on my business, which is really common, um, but I also knew that it wasn't scalable. I couldn't be sewing all these dresses myself every day in these custom one-offs. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I could hire a couple seamstresses, but I just it just didn't seem like the, the route that I wanted to go. I didn't want to be kind of like running a sweatshop or a factory. I just didn't want to do that. Um, so then I had this kind of epiphany that was when I was sewing one-off dresses, a lot of the times I was making gowns and a lot of the times I was making gowns that people were wearing uh, to weddings to, if they were like the brother of the bra, the, the sister of the groom, excuse me. Um, or like the mother of the groom or, or bride or something like the bridal party basically. And it kind of occurred to me that at every wedding, um, Jewish weddings tend to be big. There were 500 people at my wedding. It was a rocking party. We had a great time. Um, Man, I had set like 70, 80 at mine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Listen, we're a tight-knit community. There was a lot of people and a lot of food, and we just danced the night away. It was really fun. But I had this epiphany that was, even in the biggest families, the most people, the most amount of people that you're going to have in the bridal party, there's going to be maybe... 10, 15 people that are in a bridal party. You're talking about like the bride and her sisters, the groom's sisters and the two mothers. Let's say throw a couple grandmothers in there. Maybe you're getting to 10, 15 people. And then it occurred to me that at that same party, there are 250 women wearing party dresses, not gowns, short dresses um, that still cover the knee that are that they need in their closet because we're going to weddings all the time because we have a lot of kids and we make a lot of weddings. Um, and then I had this, this light bulb that went off in my brain that was, who do you want to be dressing? If there's this party happening, do you want to be dressing 10 people in the room or do you want to be dressing 250 people in the room? And that's how impact fashion was born. Uh, that was when I started, uh, wholesaling my line. That was when I started designing a line meant to be ready to wear as opposed to custom and built it from there. And so at that time you were still doing, you jumped from alterations to, you know what, let's just skip that part and make stuff that's that fits for this audience from the get-go. Yeah, so that was for sure, if I was going to design something from scratch, then I was already going to make it modest. Like when I was, whenever I was designing custom pieces with my private clients, they were all saying, you know, oh, okay, I need sleeves, I need a high neckline, I need a longer skirt. Like that was always 
going to be a part of it. So if I was going to spend time designing stuff, then yeah, it was going to be things that didn't need alterations because that's also a huge expense. I have spent sometimes more money altering a dress than I have actually buying one. Oh, and that's just not, yeah, it can get really pricey. Uh, when I would do alterations, I would charge someone uh, probably around 150 to $200 to make a neckline higher and add sleeves. It takes time and you have to basically reconstruct the piece um, and I was like, I can just make a dress already. It's easier to make a dress from the beginning that has sleeves and a high neckline than it is to completely reconstruct something. So what, uh, from the moment you said, all right, well, I'm, this, I'm doing this. There's need in the marketplace. What happened next? Because there's a big jump from, you know what? I could sew and we're going to do this to I'm now manufacturing so that I can wholesale. Because that's where this goes. And that's what, like, you're only 24 now. When did you start this? I started this when I was 21. Uh, I've been doing this. I was I've been doing this for about two and a half years. Now. Around at 21. <laughs> oh, I was screwing around too. Uh, not like that, but you know, I still made sure to have fun with it. But for me, the jump to manufacturing uh, was hellish. It really was. Um, and I think that had I known, I love what I do right now. But had I known how difficult it was going to be to manufacture, I don't know that I would have done it. And I'm so glad that I was clueless. Um, I'm so glad that I made through that hurdle. So I had a little bit of a background in how manufacturing worked because I had done an internship uh, at designer Naeem Khan. That's N-A-E-E-M, last name K-H-A-N. That's an internationally acclaimed designer. Um, and I had done a, a semester-long internship there. And they manufacture. And they do all their manufacturing here in New York, which is where I do my manufacturing now as well. And... I had their list of contacts um, because basically my job as an intern was to run errands. So it was take this fabric, bring it to this cutting room, take it from the cutting room, bring it to the sewing people, take it from the sewing people, bring it to the client. It was just a lot of like on the subway, bringing stuff here and there and seeing fancy rich people's houses. It was fun. <laughs> so it was fun. It was cool. Um, so I had that list of contacts and I had kind of basic ideas for styles. Um, I wanted to keep it really simple uh, especially for that first season, because I knew that there would be so many other hurdles to get through. Um, and I kind of knew, I knew that there was what that I didn't know, but I didn't know how much I didn't know, if that makes sense. Oh, so that, what I, oh I know that one. That's how I ended up trying to build my own e-commerce platform, is I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you're like, oh yeah, this will be fine. I'll just make a thing. And then it's, oh my God, I can't believe I'm making this thing. What the hell am I doing? Um, so what happened for me was that I spent, I had these kind of basic rough outlines of ideas um, and I had this list of contacts for my internship and I took it and I went to the Garment Center in Manhattan. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, the Garment Center is a very specific area of Midtown Manhattan where, which used to be like thriving with tons and tons of factories and manufacturers. There's much less now than there were, you know, I want to say even like 30 years ago, uh, but there are still people there and they're all kind of within the same five to six city blocks. So I took that list of contacts and I went to the Garment Center and I just started going down everyone on this list. There was about 35 uh, like factories on that list and I went to them and I was like hi I want to make a dress how much would that cost and they laughed at me um, and they told me to get out of their face and they said never come back here again and Why? I was well because I didn't know what I was talking about like saying I want to make a dress is basically like coming to you and saying I want to make a site it's like oh well what do you want that site to sell how do you want it to look what do you want it to be like do you want it to be able to support subscription things or do you want it able to just sell things you know 
like a regular product saying i want to make a dress it's like well is it strapless does it what kind of seaming does it have what kind of fabric is it made out of how many are you making what colors are you doing it in uh do you need them now do you need them in six months it's such a it's such a useless thing to say and it was so clear that i had no idea what i was talking about and these people are so busy that they were just wholly uninterested in talking to me also it happened to be because i had worked at a very famous and fancy high-end designer the factories that I had on this list and I didn't realize this at the time were only places that worked with very famous high-end designers they weren't really interested in shepherding a young person who had no idea what they were doing who was your famous designer that was Naeem Khan that was where I interned okay um and I had that list of contacts so they just weren't it wasn't what these people did and it was I spent a like a, an entire day. I got into the city at like nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning. I was there until everyone closed at five o'clock and I was just going up and down from building to building to building, trying to find people. Now this wasn't and, that long ago that you just like started knocking on doors being like, Hey, I need a manufacturer. Yeah. yeah this was about two and a half years ago. Uh, this was in the summer of 2016. Okay. And I, and it, it, it was not fun. It was really not fun. And I did that for an entire day and I was so exhausted at the end of it. And I know that a day doesn't sound like a long time, but when you're, exhausted at the end of a day you do you make stupid decisions and here was the stupid decision that i made i had a relationship with a fabric store that was in the same that was in the same area everything is in the same you know the garment center so the way that it generally works is that the retail fabric stores are kind of at street level on the storefronts uh, but they're part of larger buildings and then there's other things that are on top of them and because I had known this fabric place uh, from working with my custom clients, and I had always brought my clients here because they always gave me good prices, they had nice stuff, I walked into this fabric store and I said to the woman in charge, who I'm not going to name for reasons you will realize soon, um, I said to her, I'm, I'm really overwhelmed. I know I, I, I've been going around to all of these places. No one's giving me a straight answer. I don't know if I can even do this. I really want to make this line, but this is so confusing. Can you help me figure out which of these people who don't want to work with me I should work with? Like, who should I pursue? Can you help me figure out who I should know? Because I figured that she had a little bit more experience in, you know, in fashion just by being in the, in the district. Really, I think I was mostly just looking for a friendly face, just someone who, uh, you know, would be nice to me. It sounds like you spent the entire day being rejected and you kept going. So, like, straight up right there, you've already uncovered a couple of your superpowers because there's nothing in the universe that would make me go do what you did. Like, I'm just not going to be able to handle that level of rejection and then come out at the end of the day Thank still you. going. Thank you. But I was not really going at this point. I was really upset. Um, I had figured, you know, I had, I think I had cut class that day to go to the city. So I knew that I only had that one day. And I'm pretty sure that I had like a chemistry test the next day. I had to get it done in that day, which is not a situation that I recommend putting yourself in. Um, and at the end of the day, I go to this woman and she says to me, oh, I do manufacturing. Um, I have this, this small factory on top of my fabric store. I'll take care of everything for you. And I was so exhausted at that point. And so, and, and I knew her and I had worked with her before that I was like, yes, you win. Let's do this. And I left that day having given her uh, a $1,500 deposit, a, um, a five designs. We had picked out fabrics from her store. She was going to take care of everything. She was going to do my patterning. She was going to have it produced. She was going to take care. Um, she was going to take care of it all. She was going to make the samples for me. It was all going to be fabulous. Uh, and then she tells me it'll be ready in about two, three weeks. I could, I'm waiting for this to go horribly awry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So I give her this deposit. 
Um, and she tells me it'll be ready in about three weeks. I'm waiting for five samples to be ready. The way that production manufacturing works is that you make your sample, you make all your changes to your sample, um, and then you take it from there, you know, and then you put that piece into production and you just recreate that. Because I've heard this story before. The catch is the sample is always is going to be the best representation. However the sample looks, it's the actual production thing is going to be not quite as good as that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Always, always, always. Um, but we didn't even get that far because what happened was was that two, two, three weeks later, I call her back. Hi, where are my samples? Oh, we're working on them. They'll be ready soon. We're, we'll make it happen. Blah, blah, blah. In the end, it takes her about eight weeks to do work that she said would take two weeks to do. Um, I go to see these samples. I had made all of the samples fit me because I figured even if the whole thing doesn't work, at least I'll get new dresses out of it. <laughs> and which was, uh, I'm very practical in that way. Um, and also I figured that I would need to show it to stores once I got that far and it would just be simplest if the dresses fit me. Um, and I try on these dresses and they're terrible. They're absolutely terrible. The fit is completely wrong. The fabrics are totally wrong for the design. She raised her price on me like threefold. Um, it was about, I want to say like two and a half to three months before I left her and $3,000 before it was, oh, we are totally back at square one. And that's what happened. It was just, she was just unable to deliver on what it was that she had said that she could. So that... How did you feel? Um, how did I feel? I have a very interesting reaction to these kinds of things. I was at the same time completely crushed. Um, I only had $10,000 to work with. So losing a third of that to something that was completely and utterly useless was soul crushing. It was nerve wracking. It was everything about it was terrible. And at the same time, I was like, oh, we have got to make this shit work. That's just my reaction to things. Um, and I know you like to talk a lot about unfair advantages. I do think that the fact that I am stubborn as all get out, and if someone screws me over, I just want to prove them wrong that much more, is one of my unfair advantages. Um, and if you don't have that in you, if you're not that kind of person who has that fire, figure out a way to make it happen. Like, figure out some some way to get yourself motivated so that you can move past when something does go terribly wrong. Because I guarantee you, if you are at any point in your entrepreneurial journey, at some point, something will go terribly wrong. I consider myself fortunate that that terribly wrong thing was all the way at the beginning so that I could build off of that and not make the same mistake again. I will never, ever, ever commit to a new with a new manufacturer with five styles right off the bat. I would never do that again. I would never, ever, ever put all my eggs in one basket like that again. Um, and I would never make a decision in five seconds. You know, I, whenever I'm thinking about working with a new manufacturer, it's always great. I'll email you later tonight after I meet with them. And that's something that you don't, you can do. You don't need to give someone an answer right away. And that's something that, that I learned also from this experience. But yeah, it sucked on every level. <laughs> but you kept going. And you're right. Yeah. That, like that's, that's your superpower. I remember my dad referred to it. He said, um, in situations like that, he said, I'm a plugger. Like, as he would just keep yeah. plugging away at something until eventually you got it. Um, and I think it goes back to that, that famous, uh, often misquoted Woody Allen line from the seventies was 80% of success is showing up. And really it's just like, it's not that often it, it's not that you have to do anything better than anyone else. Just keep showing up and eventually like you'll figure it out and then keep showing up and you'll outlast your competitors as a lot of them are going to burn out. Certainly something to be said for that, that entrepreneurial persistence. 
so you're really you're very very young in doing this. You're going to college. You've got a lot a lot going on, and things are going wrong. But you're staying. You're stubbornly sticking to it to your credit. But it's really tough when it's just you. Especially like that's one of the really tough things about being an entrepreneur um, is no one else gets it. So did you have like mentors, a support group? Did you have anyone you could talk to that like understood what was going on? I did and I didn't. And here's what I mean by that. I had people who I had worked with. I had taken a gap year and were, um, and studied in Israel, which is very common in my community. Yep. And what I did during that year, um, I was not so into the study aspect of it. I was like, I have graduated high school. I have done well in high school. I'm done with school. So what I actually did was that through a whole crazy turn of events, I found someone who was making custom gowns in Israel. And she was doing a kind of a version of the business that I did here in New York. Um, and I kind of apprenticed with her. And, um, and she showed me how to do a lot of the techniques that she did. She showed me how to work with clients really well. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Israel working with her and I kept up with her after, uh, when I was, when I was, you know, building the business, not so much the wholesale line, but when I was working, um, in alterations and I always had her to fall back on. And I felt like that was really helpful. Just even just to be like, Oh, this sucks. That's really helpful. Um, business therapy is what I call that. That's it. Uh, it's a totally undervalued aspect um, of your business is like, you know, when you have a career, like, yeah, it's personal, but when you have a business, like your identity is so tied up in it sure. that there is, you absolutely need to have someone that you could go to business therapy with. And it sounds like you found that person. Yeah. So I, I definitely had that person via email. And then the other person that I had was my mom. And here's the thing. My mom and I are basically the same person. We joke that we talk the same. We sound the same. We like the same movies and, and like the same colors and everything. Um, and she has always been a really good external brain for me. And there have been a bunch of times where it's just been like, I need to talk this out and I need to, I need to take this from beginning to end. And my mom has always been that person for me. I will say that now, so to a lesser extent, because my husband definitely fills that role now. Um, but I think that that's really important to have someone who you can just verbally vomit at and and just get everything out on the table um and that was my mom and also my grandmother her mom uh because they are both people who have worked in the business world um and they they understood at the that while this was a soul crushing thing that happened the first thing that they all said to me was you have lost nothing you know you ha it's not like you've lost a reputation it's not like you've promised these close to someone and you can't deliver on them and it's just money you'll make it back and having that perspective from the two of them was incredibly helpful. Um, and that, and also just, I think that I was at an advantage because of the stage in my life where I was at, because I was 21, I was in college, all of my friends are figuring their shit out. You know, nobody really knows what, what they're doing. You know, I had a friend who at the time was convinced that she would be a doctor and then decided on optometry and then became a, a physician's assistant. And she's so good at it. And while we're all just kind of figuring our shit out, we were all just complaining to each other and just, you know, airing all of that out. And I think the fact that I had that was great because it was like, oh, Rifki's just trying to make her own job. You know, we're all trying to find jobs. She's going to make her own. Um, and that, I think, was also really helpful. So, yeah, there are definitely people who I think that I can vent to. And I think that's so important. Just find someone who you can, like I said, verbally vomit at and be your external brain. And 
if you are prone to anxiety like I am, I get really nervous. I'm a I'm a warrior by nature. Um, then you need to have someone who can who can talk you through that and talk you through the worst case scenario, and then realize that it's all going to be okay. That's uh, when you have anxiety like that. That's called catastrophizing, where you have to run. Like you make things a hundred times worse in your head. Yeah. And the thing that undoes it is often just, well, let's talk through the worst possible case scenario out loud. And suddenly, like when it goes from in your head to telling, explaining it to someone, it starts to say, it very quickly starts to sound utterly absurd and unravel if you're like the slightest yeah. bit rational. So it's a really exactly. easy way to work through anxiety. And actually, like yeah. I, I went to therapy. That was an exercise. We did. It's like, oh, okay, you're worried about this. Let's walk through the absolute worst case that could happen. And it's like, well, you know, I'm driving there and my car explodes. And then, like, I'm a, it's like, no, that's all ridiculous, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hold up. We'll hear more after this quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Simpler, a new way to staff 24 7 sales and customer service on your Shopify store. It works with your existing email and chat tools, so setup is quick and easy. Simpler provides on-demand, U.S.-based customer service specialists to answer your customers' most common questions. Close more sales with Simpler by staffing your email and live chat with 24-7 Simpler specialists. Find out more at simpler.ai. That's S-I-M-P-L-R dot A-I. And now, back to the show. Hit me. You have a lot lot of good things going for you, um, certainly, and I you are absolutely able to recognize it, and I think that that in itself is a skill. But... Hey, you're, like, let's just th- think about the insanity of this. Everyone on the planet is manufacturing in China, and you didn't even did you even consider it? Or you're just like, listen, I'm from New York. We've got garment manufacturing in New York. We're keeping like this is this is a local business uh, for me. And I think in many ways, like in intentionally or not in your head, you were doing it as like this is very much a starting as a community effort. I'm supporting my local community. So that sounds a lot more noble than it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, sure, I'll go with that. You like that uh, apocryphal, that's the apocryphal yeah. version of the story. Okay. Yeah, so for me, everyone manufactures in China. And the only thing that you hear about manufacturing in China are horror stories. Um, nope, you know, you always hear, I got a sample, it was great, it comes, you know, it comes back in production and everything is wrong. After being um, delayed three to four times. Exactly. Um, I was, I was really scared of that. I also knew New York manufacturing from my internship. Like I knew okay. the basic gist of how it went. Um, I, it was, I felt like I was biting off so much more already that even if it was going to be so much more expensive and it is so much more expensive, uh, to produce in New York, it just didn't, it seemed like something that I could handle. It seemed like something that I could manage, uh, and I also wasn't ready to commit to quantity. When I uh, sold my first collection, I sold 25 pieces, not styles, actual dresses. And you, and that was across three or four different styles. You're what not going to get something. What was the average price at that point? Uh, so the average price was pretty much the same as it has been now. My uh, wholesale is always half of retail. Uh, my wholesale line starts uh, for a dress at about 140 or so. Um, and everything stays under $400 retail. Um, and the price was pretty much the same. And for me, it was just, you know what? I need someone who will make 20 dresses for me. And you're not going to find that in China. And I, I am inherently risk averse, actually. Um, sinking a lot of money into 
a whole lot of inventory scares me to no end. And it wasn't something that I wanted to do. And if you produce in China, then you are committing to quantity right off the bat. And I didn't want to do that. So I started off with my manufacturer in New York. And for now, it's still in New York. Can I say that it's always going to be that way? No. Um, it's highly possible that there will come a point when it no longer makes sense to do that. For right now, it, it still makes sense. So I'm keeping it here for now. And I like keeping it in New York. I like that I can be on top of it. Um, I like that I know that the working conditions are safe. You know, I like that I know that there's lunch breaks in bathrooms and stuff like that. Um, and I can't say the same with 100% certainty about an overseas factory. So yeah, that, that was my manufacturing journey. New York just seemed more accessible and they were more willing to work with me. Hmm. Okay. The, I, I like that. Seems it, it's a... Uh... It's ethical, it's socially responsible, but it also came out of like, listen, this is what I know, so this is what I'm going with, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, all right, so at what point do you start the Shopify store? When do you, well, how do you, once you've got the dresses, they're manufactured, how do you first sell these things? And at this point, you're doing wholesale, so like, how did we get there? So here's the magic of wholesale. You can uh, produce a wholesale business. You can make a wholesale business that functions completely on pre-orders, which is the magic sauce. Because for me, like I said, I'm extremely risk averse. I don't want to be making $30,000 in inventory and then worry about having to sell it. I want to sell $30,000 and then make it. And that's what you can do with wholesale. Uh, because fashion buying happens so much earlier. And that means that I can make my production numbers really, really tight. And I'm not going to have a lot of extra and it's, and I don't have to worry about storing it. And I don't have to worry about moving it because it's already moved. I just show them my samples. They tell me what sizes and colors they want. And I take it from there. Um, and the way that I sold my wholesale collection was I called up stores. You make everything sound so easy. <laughs> you but just call is. them up and Here's you're like, Hey, get some stuff. Yeah, no, I called them up and I said, hi, my name is Rifki. Um, I have great dresses and I think that we should meet so I can show them to you. Now, granted, I made a million phone calls. Um, I actually have a, like a directory of all of the boutiques, um, like all of the modest boutiques that I could drive to. The farthest that I went was Philly. It was about two and a half hours from, uh, no, it was like three hours. I don't know, whatever. It was the farthest that I went from New York City. Someone else Google Maps it. But I just made this list of all of the boutiques that I could think of. I asked my friends, where do you shop? I had this network of international friends from that gap year that I did in Israel. So I just, you know, we have a WhatsApp chat with all hundred of us or something. So I put out on there, quick, name me the top five shops that you get your, that you get your clothes at. And then I started making phone calls and I spent two and a half months making phone calls. Um, and it was, hi, my name is Rifki. I have great dresses. Let's talk. And I want to say that of the probably 100 or so boutiques that I called, about 75% agreed to meet with me. Of those 75%, probably about two-thirds actually kept that meeting. And from that, it just pared down. And for my first season, I had three stores. And those three stores will forever be like the most important people in my life. Um, without them, I would not have a company. And I, and I went to these stores. And sometimes if they wouldn't take my call, I would just walk in. Be like, hi, is your buyer here? Because these are very, these are independently owned boutiques. A lot of times the buyer is the owner who's also the, the person behind the cash register. So I just walked in and it was like, hi, can I, I have dresses in my trunk. Can I bring them in and show them to you? Um, and this was just a real hustle. And if you can handle the exhaustion that is travel and the emotional exhaustion that is rejection, you can sell a wholesale product. 
100%. Because you can call every boutique in your area. It is possible to do it. I have done it. You know, it'll take a while, but it can be done. And you can't call every person, every individual who might be interested in your product. That's that's just not possible. Um, but you can call every boutique. And that's what I did. I just, I called them up and I went around and I spent three, two and a half to three months, somewhere in that range, selling that first collection. You're a hustler. You're pounding the pavement, ringing phones. Yeah, it was a true, it was a really true hustle in like the very classic sense of the word. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I did do that I think was a little bit more strategic, there is a neighborhood in South Jersey called Lakewood, which is a very a concentrated Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I don't know what it is that's different about this neighborhood from other neighborhoods, but it has a ton of boutiques. It's super concentrated and there's a ton of boutiques there. And my sister happens to live in that neighborhood. So for that first season, I moved into her apartment for about two weeks and I went to every single store in that neighborhood. It was about 30 stores, 35 or something like that. And some of them I was able to make appointments before and some of them I just walked in and they were like, the owner won't be here for an hour. And I'll be like, great, I'll be back in an hour. And then I would sit in my car for an hour and then I would show up again in an hour and they'll be like, oh, this chick means it. She's coming back. Um, and sometimes they told me to get out of their face and sometimes they told me never to come back. And sometimes they told me that my dresses were ugly. And sometimes they told me that my fit was terrible. And sometimes they told me Jeez. that, yeah, like, and it was all of that. You also have to remember that uh, I was, I modeled the clothes um, because I, I started modeling the clothes because the samples fit me because I want the clothes in my closet and also because I am the sales rep and it's easier to show someone a dress on a person than on a hanger. So, and, and also I'm a very average bad body type. So by modeling the clothes, then I can show them, you know, listen, I am, I am not a model figure. I am not, you know, I am not super thin and these clothes make me look really good. And that was just a really powerful sales tool. And it's one that I still use. So when people are telling me, you know, your body seems disproportionate. Oh, Jesus. Um, that's literally what people are saying. To me. And it's, and it's, I don't think this makes you look great. You know, your butt is sticking out funny. They're literally talking about clothes that are on my actual body. Oh, brutal. So, it was brutal. It was I'd quit brutal. after the first day. I just, <laughs> somebody called me fat on Facebook once, like, and I was just like, what is your problem? <laughs> Yeah, it's like, what did I do to you? That's the, the funny thing. It's like, it's so different. I found it comical because it takes, like, there's a reason why cyberbullying exists. And that's because it is strange to go up to someone in public to their face and say, you're fat. You don't do that. That's what social media is for. You yeah, you'd be like, all right, I'm going to call the cops now. <laughs> right, exactly. But that's what was happening. And I just found it comical when people to my face would be like, you're fat. Be like, thank you. You're strange. Let's move on. Yeah, like, um, oh, you're a monster. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Um, so, yeah, those three months were brutal, but they got but it you done. you kept going. You must have the thickest skin now. Yeah, I do have really thick skin now. I've always kind of had thick skin. I am stupidly stubborn. And I just think that that's really one of my unfair advantages. I... I decide what I'm going to do, and there is nothing that you can say to change that. It made me a really fun teenager, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> sure so, you, yeah. You've got 
just this uh, unbelievable motivation and drive and like incredible self-confidence and independence. Like and when someone says you have thick skin, it's really like they have unshakable con- self-confidence and a clear self-image and they you know what direction you are going. And as you start to get these early wins, you're like, all right, I've got something here. Um, but or like and you jump you went straight to wholesale, which is interesting. Why did you go with starting your business with wholesale? That's the question. I fundamentally understood that if I made enough phone calls um, and because a lot of my retailers were these independently owned boutiques, I knew that I just needed to find the right person and get them in a room and I'm good with people and I could sell to them and they would buy five dresses. Um, And that to me just seems so much more accessible than starting with just putting up a website and hoping someone would find it. That, that to me just didn't seem like it would happen. Um, Do you see the, the difference do you know what's stopping people from doing that the reason most people are like i'm just going to put up a website and see who buys it is because it's less risky to their psyche right yeah it's it's much more passive also. like you're like yeah I, you know i knew i could just sell it in stores yeah and people were also like your butt's weird like you had the yeah. strangest interactions whereas if i just put something online it's less risk to my ego i think that's that's why exactly well that's the one thing that i think everyone needs to check at the door um, if you're going to be in any kind of sales position, your ego needs to be separate from that. It just does. You cannot have your your self-worth tied to other people's opinions because it will crush you. You are wise They're, beyond your years. <laughs> um, it's just the truth about it. It's You need to have a very clear idea of what it is that you do. I knew that my product was really good. I knew that it fit properly because it fit me really well and I don't wear clothes that don't fit. I knew that it was something totally different. I knew that it was something that these stores needed. I knew that even if they weren't willing to take me seriously because I was just a kid showing up, that one day they would. And those were just things that I accepted as fundamental truths. And that doesn't mean that I accepted them every day. There were, I considered closing my company probably about once every two weeks. Oh, jeez. Uh, especially in those first, in those first. Um, what stopped you? When you had that moment where you're like, man, I should just pack it in and get get a, a quote-unquote real job. We've all had those moments. What's the thing where you're like, no, no, I'm not doing that? I, I couldn't figure out what that real job would be. For me, it was, okay, I closed down my company. I, I stopped selling things. I delivered this last season. It's over. What do I do next? And then it was, you could... Uh, work in someone else's production department, making someone else's designs come true. That seems like all of the hard work with none of the fun. You could be someone's design assistant. That seems like being able to just do things that someone else wants you to do. And that's not what I wanted to do. Um, You could maybe teach fashion design in a school someplace, but um, it just, there was nothing that it always came back to being my best option. It was always, I can do any of these terrible, shitty nine-to-fives that I really don't want to do, or I can eat some ice cream, get over this, and start again tomorrow. And for me, the answer was always that second option. And ice cream is a very powerful tool. I highly recommend it, by the way. <laughs> it's it's useful. I'm just putting that out there. And, even, and like, for me, it's ice cream. I'm a Ben & Jerry's gal all the way. Um, but if there is something that makes you feel great and calms you down, do that thing. Whenever you're feeling like you're having this moment of existential crisis and just take a deep breath and calm yourself down and think through your options because sometimes businesses need to be closed. That's a valid strategy. And sometimes you need to severely pivot 
like what you did when you were building that the whole platform and you're like yeah this isn't happening (laughs) sometimes you need to pivot yeah like that was a terrible idea and you should not have pursued it and that's great that you moved and what you need to do when you're having those moments is think through what are my options and do this and don't make this decision in an hour what are my options what can i do will i be happier doing those things will the financial payoff be the same for me am i okay if it's less financial payoff do I do I want to do those other things? And do I want to do them more than I want to continue with this business? And if the and then just run with those answers. And for me, every single time the answer was, I want to do this more than I want to do that. And that's why I kept doing it because it just made sense for me at the time. And it just kept making sense and it kept making sense and eventually it paid off. This has been a tremendous interview because you are so genuine and authentic and vulnerable and inspiring and we haven't even talked about your darn shopify store yet tell me (laughs) tell me about the shopify store like when did that start so that you could so like the whole business started really wholesale now you've got a shopify store where you're going uh direct to consumer so the shopify store started this past summer i launched it in august of 2018 that started because i started an instagram account which is at impact.fashion.myc and for me once i started the instagram account um i did it to, to get my brand more recognition i didn't need it to make wholesale sales i was doing perfectly fine without wholesale sales i don't really focus so much on growing my instagram account because wholesale is the majority of my business and instagram doesn't bring me those sales so i once but once i did start that account um i had people reach out to me who were not in areas where i had boutiques um you know, most of my boutiques were in the New York area and they were coming at me from other places. And it was, hi, where can I get your dresses? And it was, oh, which style do you want? Because then you'll need to reach out to this boutique that also ships. It just didn't make sense. Um, and I wanted to be able to help out those people who were reaching out to me that they wanted the product. And there are better re- um, margins in retail. It's just true. Um, you know, the same dress that I sell for wholesale at 140, I sell for retail at 280 and it costs me the same amount to make it. Um, so from a business perspective, it made sense. Um, and I launched the site, uh, in such a way, I actually just uh, moved away from this a couple weeks ago where when I first launched the site, I had a couple of pieces that were in stock that were leftovers for whatever reason. And then I had all of my styles that were only wholesale pieces and I didn't want to stock them because stock scares me shitless. So... <laughs> It really does. Um, so, so many businesses live and die by their inventory, and I just couldn't handle that. And also, you need physical space to keep them, and I didn't I didn't have it. So what I actually did was that I created two separate collections on my store, and one was called the Ready to Party collection, and one was called the Fashionably Late collection. And I just moved away from this now a couple weeks ago, but with the Ready to Party collection, it was pieces that I had in stock uh, for whatever reason. And they would ship right away within two to three business, within one to two business days. And then the fashionably late collection were pieces that I did not have in stock, but I would make them for you as you ordered them. So they would take about two weeks to ship, but it was like keeping a, a digital inventory. It was like drop shipping in that way, because I could take every style that I had ever made and make it available in every size. And you're essentially never out of stock because you never had it in the first place. And if you would order a certain dress in a size 16, then I would have it made for you in that size, ship it to you. Um, it just took a little bit longer. I just moved away from that because I finally had, uh, the space and the capital to invest in actual stock, uh, which is what I did. So, uh, so I don't, my site isn't set up like that anymore. It's actually much easier to shop right now. Um, 
so yeah, I started doing it that way just as a way for people who found me through methods other than my boutique so that they had a way, they had a home, they had a place to be. Um, and that's been going really well. I did invest in some pay-per-click campaigns uh, through a program called Jump App. Um, and that has been really helpful in driving traffic to my site. That's why I am within the top 12% of Shopify stores uh, launch the same week as I am. Um, and that also just means that more people find me and more people get to know me. And uh, and I'll be... I'll be expanding the site to be more of its own home um, and be my retail arm because as people have gotten to know me and not just my retailers, uh, they've been wanting to see more and more from me. So I will be launching new projects and things like that. Cool. Uh, let's see. So the one of the you had mentioned, well, in marketing that site, your your Shopify site, how has how does that feel different than wholesale, um, and what's been working? So for me, the marketing of retail site in a lot of ways can feel like yelling into a paper bag. Just screaming into the void, yes. Exactly. It's a um, boring dystopia. Yeah, it really is. Um, and for me, the marketing of that is something that I have mainly outsourced because it's not something that I'm good at. It's not something that I know very well. And it's just not something that I'm frankly interested in learning. Um, so uh, when I say that I use Jump App, I don't use Jump App. I have a manager who deals with that. Um, and I can't really answer any questions on that program because I frankly have no idea how it works. I've never opened the interface. All I know is that I give her a budget. She's got her keywords. People come to the site and they buy stuff. That's, and that to me is, is really helpful because it means that I don't need to worry about that. Um, in marketing the site, I use mainly Instagram. And for me, in a lot of ways, that's yelling into a void because a lot of what you're doing on any social media is just letting people know that you exist. And especially since my product is not something that you're going to need every day, I'm basically just constantly reminding people that I'm around. And then when they need something, hopefully they'll come to me. So it sounds like the your approach is like one drive awareness to stay top of mind. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I what I focus on. Um, and then with my wholesale marketing, that's just a heck of a lot of phone calls. It really is. Um, that's it's just a lot of phone calls. It's making sure that I'm at the right trade shows. Um, it's making sure that people know that I'm around, that people see growth in my company. Uh, retailers want to see confidence in a company. So, you know, even though they know, even though they're only seeing me, I'm the face of the company, they're seeing that, you know, my first collection, I had five pieces. And now in my sixth collection, I'll have a dozen pieces, totally new designs. And that's growth that they want to see. They want to know that I'm in 25 boutiques across the country, because that means that other people like my stuff too, and it validates their decision. Um, so yeah, wholesale marketing is something that I focus on two months out of the year, because uh, wholesale sales are only made two months out of the year. And then past that retail marketing is just, it's, it's a lot of just letting people know that you exist and hoping that they'll buy from you. And that's not the same as liking you. That's another thing. Like, especially with Instagram marketing, when it comes to, um, when it comes to a brand that is so focused on the personal, I actually very much resisted being the face of my brand, um, for a while. Uh, I want to say for about a year and a half, I didn't want to do it. Um, I had got my friends to model. Um, I showed other people that were involved in the company, like, but not, but I didn't want to be the person in every dress at every point. Uh, cause I just felt like it made me look small and I didn't want to look small. I am big and powerful and I, and I know what I'm doing and I deserve to be taken seriously. And what I realized was that once I embraced the fact 
that this is a small company and that it does run out of space in my parents' house and that I am the only person who works on it full time. And once I started being more open about that with my followers, instead of the reaction I thought I would get, which was, oh, this is just some chick messing around. This is not you know, this is, this is not anything I want to waste my time with. It was, oh my God, you're a superwoman. How are you managing to do all of this? This is incredible. I liked your company before. Now I love your company. I also have something that I'm starting on my kitchen table that I want to make happen. How do I do that? What does that happen? I can't believe you make these gorgeous designs out of patterns that you make in your parents' house. That's great. Um, and I, I have think a that big smile on my face because that <laughs> is the magic of working in public. Yes, and it, embracing that personal branding, like you're just going to do exactly the same thing you were doing before, except now you're going to talk about it on social media. And some people, the people who connect with it, will be like, "Oh my God, you're speaking right to me." Right, exactly. It's the kind of thing where it's like when you buy something from Dior, you're not going to get to to talk to Maria Grazia Cherry. You're just not going to get to do that. That's a very fashion reference. Sorry, she's the head designer at Dior, uh, creative director. Um, you're not going to get to talk to her even though she's the one who made it. If you buy something from me, you could talk to me. If you DM my Instagram account, I will answer you. And a lot of times I will answer you with a video message because they're fun to make. Um, and, that, and that makes it feel, people want to feel like they're buying from a person, not from a company. Um, and I think that it's so funny that as consumers, we don't want to be supporting giant corporations, but as entrepreneurs, all we want to be is a giant corporation. And all you want to be is just look big and look important and look like you have everything together. And the truth is that people don't feel like they have to buy something from Walmart. You know, people don't go to Amazon because they love Amazon. They go to Amazon because they can get free two day shipping and watch videos. That's why they go to Amazon. People will go to you because they want you because they want to come to you. And what that also means is that if someone rips off your designs, if someone copies you, if someone undercuts you, it doesn't matter because the reason why they're coming to you is not because you have that great product. The reason why they're coming to you is because you are you. It's you. It's your your secret sauce. It's because they love you. It's because they saw you making that product. It's because they saw you developing that product. It's because they saw you redesign that dress 10 times to get it perfectly right. And they're they're always going to come to you when they need that thing. I, I it's fantastic. I couldn't I I didn't even have a follow-up just that it <laughs> That's such a, a brilliant take on it. Okay. the In the pre-interview, you had mentioned, we were talking about um, that Pablo Picasso quote, good artists copy, great artists steal. And you had mentioned uh, how you got your email series set up. I loved that tip. I think that's that's where I want to close it out. Um, share that, that anecdote with me. So the thing about me and web design is that I'm not a web designer. I just know how I like things to look. Um, and I'm also a fan of simplicity. And I very much wanted to build my store and build this processes by myself um, because I like challenges and also because I wanted to know how it worked. And I felt like the easiest way to do that was to just do it um, myself. So I used a pretty basic Shopify theme. I'm, I use the Brooklyn theme. I highly recommend it. It's really great. Um, and then I built on it from there and kind of customized it in a lot of ways. Um, and when I was doing that, uh, I spoke with someone who was actually um, an expert in email marketing and I was thinking about what kind of campaigns I wanted to set up and she said to me the first thing you need to do is pick your top five favorite brands and sign up for their emails which I did and then she said take your top five things that all of those brands do and make an email series that way um, people have already done this before you they're probably really good at it if there's a company like Zara and they're sending out emails 
You want to know how those emails are looking and you want to know what they set, what they, what, how often they're sending them and what content is in there. And then just do that. Don't try to sit, crack your head, creating something totally new. Just if Zara is sending out an email once every two weeks with a new edit, which is just the same products rearranged into different collections, do that because it works. No one is writing from scratch. I think that's a very um, that's a, a common mistake. New entrepreneurs mistake is new entrepreneurs make is they assume like, all right, I got to do everything fresh. And the reality is like pro copywriters have a whole bunch of templates and swipe files that they start with and build from. And I start like I use uh, email templates for all kinds of things. And we use theme templates to start with. And we have codes like you build, you quickly build a library of stuff. And if you don't have a library of stuff to work with, you're going to look around for what's available. Like, hey, let's look at um, people doing things similar to us and then treat those as templates. In no way are you copying. You're not like, all right, I'm going to copy and paste their email into my Klaviyo account and send it out. No, but you know, the tough part is the ideation is being like, this is what I'm going to send out. This is the topic. This is the type of email. Exactly. This is the layout. And then, okay, now that you've got, that's the hard part is getting that. Uh, idea and now all right now i'm, I'm going to take what i have and plug my own stuff into this framework right for sure and then i think another thing that's helpful is that almost every program that you can use i'm not so familiar with clavio but i do use mailchimp um which i know is a dirty word in the in the shopify world um but i was able to pretty easily connect it back to my store using ShopSync actually yeah. um even like within mailchimp they have templates. It's like, do you want to make an announcement? Do you want to promote one of your products? Do you want to, you know, what do you want to do? And then just click that and do that and just follow the prompts. They're not stupid. Like they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The magic is in the doing, not in overcomplicating it. Exactly. And to your point about the hardest part is coming up with what to send. I think that content calendars are really helpful for that. Um, and I do use them to a lesser extent on my Instagram than I do with my emails. Um, but with my Instagram, what I'll do is that I'll plan out a series of nine images, uh, nine types of images, and that I always like to keep those nine in that first grid box that you see. Um, and then I always know that like, okay, so if the thing that is about to get bumped out of my screen is a picture of me in a dress uh, from a specific season, then I'm gonna post a different dress from that season so that there's always something around. Um, and that's something that I find to be really helpful. And especially in emails, if you've got something that you want to promote, if you know that you're launching a product in two weeks, then sit down with a calendar and say two weeks before we're sending out a teaser email. And then a week before we're sending out a sneak peek. And then the day before it's, here's our fabulous new product. Go look at it. And then once you plan that out, it makes it really easy to just sit down and make all those emails at once because they're just different versions of each other. So, you know, you just change out the image and make a slight tweak to the copy and boom, you're done. Brilliant. I wish I wish more people were as organized uh, as you are. Man, I've got more questions. All right, I'll do one more. Um, you are certainly in a niche business where you said, I'm a practicing Orthodox Jew. I need fashionable, modest clothes that I could just get off the rack. And so you set out and you did that. And a lot of people's fear is but like when they haven't experienced the magic of niching down, which is you are now top of mind for word of mouth and for repeat purchases, um, is that, oh, well, we're not casting a wide enough net or we're pigeonholing ourselves. And so the question I pose to you is, have you found yourself limited to just Orthodox Jews or do other people purchase your dresses? 
So I definitely know that other people are interested in my designs. I do not know the, like, based on your address and name, I can't really tell how religious you are or what religion you are. Um, I can kind of guess that if your name is Schwartz and you live in Brooklyn, you're probably a member of my tribe. Um, but past that, I don't, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to really put a number on that. I do know that on my social media, I get a lot of response from people of all different types. Um, and the really specific niche that I'm in, which is not only modest fashion, but size inclusive modest fashion that actually fits. And I say this all the time. If anybody knows of another modest special occasion line that runs sizes two through 24, please let me know so that I can shout them out because I have been looking and I have not found anybody else. And I would love to make more brands available to my customers. And the thing that is about my niche is that if you are not super thin and you dress modestly, I am your only option. As far as I know, I am your only option. And with that, and there's a lot of people who fit that category. And I think that people get so nervous about niching down because like you said, they feel like they're pigeonholing themselves. But if there are other people in that pigeonhole with you and you're the only person selling that thing, then you are their choice. Like that's the reason. And if you can get really specific messaging around that thing that you do, then you're good. Like you're good to go. Um, and that, and that to me is the, is the simplest way to get something that reaches a lot of people because then their chances are if you have a problem, other people have that problem. And if you're not sure if other people have that problem, ask them, see if you can find, if you can find in a half an hour, 10 people who have the same problem as you, you're onto something. And if you can't, maybe you need to re yeah, re You should be a, a business coach or write a book or have a YouTube <laughs> channel or something because this is such great, brilliant, practical, actionable advice um, for especially early entrepreneurs. So thank you for, for sharing your journey, for being vulnerable. In my notes, I see here that we have a discount code for folks who want to make their first purchase from impactfashionnyc.com. What is it and what do they get? That's right. If you use code unofficial, then you will get free shipping with your order. And there are also free returns on every order, no matter what, even if you use a discount code. So you put code unofficial right there in and shipping is on me. Cool. Uh, last question, where could people go to learn more about you? So if you want to learn more about me and my everyday grind and the random things that are happening in my head, best place to do that is on my Instagram. That's at impact.fashion.nyc. If you want to see my stuff and get a more in-depth look at my company and the brand, you can head to impactfashionnyc.com. Any, uh, kind of contact that you have with the company, either through the Instagram or through the contact page on my site that goes directly to my inbox. So you will get an answer from me. Please do reach out. I'd love to hear from you, your questions, comments, concerns, all the, all the above. Rifki, you're the best. Thank you for doing this. Very inspirational night. I hugely appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Big news from our friends at Out of the Sandbox this month. Their newest theme just launched. It's called Flux. And it's for those of us who loved all the bells and whistles in Turbo, but thought, I need more of this. That's where Flex is a game changer for you. It can be configured in an endless number of ways, thanks to more layout and section options than ever, more granular control of settings, and easy addition of custom CSS through the theme editor. It's perfect for development agencies like ourselves, as well as e-commerce entrepreneurs like you looking to create a unique online store experience for your customers. Now here's the coolest part. Flex has a new Demo Shop Import feature that allows you to fast-track your shop setup based on any of 12 demo shops. You get all of the theme settings, layouts, content, and sections used in that demo shop of your choice applied automatically to your store. 
You can check Flex out right now at outofthesandbox.com. And if you like it, take 20% off the purchase price when you use code PODCAST20 at checkout. That's outofthesandbox.com and code PODCAST20. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high-quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.